P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It appears that China and the U.S. have moved one step away from the edge of a potentially vitriolic trade war. But can they avoid it completely? I want to bring in George Magnus, a Bloomberg View contributor, uh, an associate at Oxford University's China Center. He's also the former chief international economist at UBS. Uh, George, I want to get your take first. Uh, We know that uh, President Trump and President Xi Jinping uh, had a constructive conversation, or that's how it was presented, uh, and that President Trump reaffirmed the U.S.'s take uh, or or assumption of a one-China policy. How important was this, and how likely is it that negotiations will continue in a constructive way towards some kind of uh, trade deal? Well, <clears throat> hi, Lisa. I mean, I think the, the first part of your question actually is easy, and the second part actually is not so easy. Um, so um, it's, um, it, it's a shame that it should come to a situation that we have now where something that's been established policy in international relations for the last 40 years uh, should suddenly be regarded um, as, you know, the United States making a concession to China over the one-China policy, because it has been obviously part of the, um, the policy structure for, uh, for an awfully long time. Um, and I think, you know, by general agreement, actually, I thought the, I think the, you know, people thought that when, um, uh, when the president, uh, we have to refer which president, when President Trump um, highlighted uh, or emphasized, you know, the, uh, that the one China policy might be in play as a, as a tool or as a, a piece of leverage in trade negotiations. I mean, I think the, the general opinion about that was, whoa, you know, this is actually something which is, this is a red line for China. And there was no, there would be no conference room in the world where China's delegation would stay if uh, that issue was ever brought up uh, in discussion. So in a way, we should, um, I guess we should be, you know, uh, acknowledge that uh, this kind of lowers the temperature because if there was anything that was guaranteed to uh, to get Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership, um, you know, banging their drums at home, it would be what they would have seen as a provocation by the United States over over Taiwan. So that's good. Does it actually portend um, good relations and you know satisfactory outcome to uh, trade negotiations? I don't know. I don't think it would necessarily because. I think that um, the United States probably has a pretty, uh, you know, long and detailed shopping list about what the kind of concessions that it wants the Chinese to make. And I'm not sure they're ready to make those concessions, to be honest. George Magnus, uh, you, uh, well, I just want you to tell people what is a Minsky moment, and <laughs> uh, when is the next one? Yeah, well, Minsky moment. Um, so we talked, or some of us talked a little bit about one in 2006, 2007. And really, the, the Minsky moment is kind of, it, it's, uh, it, 
it, it's a kind of a colloquial expression. I don't think the economist, the American economist, Hyman Minsky, ever used it himself about himself. But he um, basically taught us in the 1980s, um, or you know, uh, spoke and wrote in the 1980s about what happens when leverage in the financial system builds up to such an extent that. Um, uh, the you know the capitalist system itself becomes inherently unstable, and it just needs kind of a catalyst like falling asset prices or house prices was the particular case in point in 2007, um, and the whole edifice of credit comes crashing down um, as we saw. So the Minsky moment really is the point at which the system of leverage in in finance becomes so dangerous that. It's prone to collapse when uh, the collateral, which could be commodities, it could be you know house prices or whatever, it's it's when that when that happens, and so we saw that in um, in full display, of course, in um, in the financial crisis of two thousand and eight. Well, so then the logical question is, I mean, China obviously has uh, boosted its leverage tremendously, and apparently at an accelerating clip. At what point does it reach its Minsky moment? You have asked the sixty-four million dollar question, which uh, deserves an honest answer. <laughs> I'm not sure, well, I'll give you an honest answer. I'm not sure whether how accurate it is. But anyway, my, my feeling is that uh, although a lot of people um, kind of say quite loosely and, and, and correctly, in my view, that China cannot carry on accumulating debt uh, the way it is, um, it's very important, I think, to distinguish between what's happening to the loans, to the assets of the banking system, and the liabilities which fund those assets. So because China has a state-owned banking system, um, it's very unlikely, in my view, that they will have a Lehman's moment, a Lehman Brothers moment, where a major bank will go bust. Major banks will not be allowed to go bust. So in a way, because of state ownership of the banking system and because of the regulatory environment, um, the Chinese uh, authorities can, can do what we used to call extend and pretend. They can, they can basically push out the moment at which bad loans have to be accounted for and paid for uh, for a considerable period of time. Right. What they can't do is really improve the funding of the loan. So um, one of the things that, for example, even the International Monetary Fund um, brought out in uh, one of its uh, financial stability reports last year was how the funding of loans in China has uh, increased by about a factor of six over the last five or six years. And this makes the system really unstable. we got to leave it there. George Magnus, thank you very much. Associate Oxford University's China Center. that rocked the world. A lot of people were waiting to see what a federal court uh, would say, a federal appeals court, uh, in response to President Trump's travel ban. What they said was they unanimously refused to reinstate it. President Trump has responded with a tweet, all caps, see you in court. To get a sense of what the main implications of this ruling are, I want to bring in June Grasso, who's a legal expert and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio, which airs weekdays at 4.30 p.m. Eastern. She is here with us in our 11.30 studio. studio. So, June, what is your biggest takeaway from this ruling? This was sort of a showdown over... The president's power and the judiciary's power and the independence of the judiciary. I mean, we know that President Trump has been saying over and over again that 
I am the final word when it comes to immigration. I'm the final word when it comes to national security. And they brought that to the court. They said, you can't even review this. And the court said, oh, yes, we can. And oh, yes, we did. And they said it's beyond question that the federal judiciary has the authority to adjudicate constitutional challenges. And something they did that's perhaps subtle and um, it was sort of like um, a note to Justice Kennedy, because what they, he's, he might be the swing vote if this ever goes to the Supreme Court. And what they did was they quoted and they cited one of his decisions, which said that that the the judiciary has the right to review these kinds of presidential orders. So when Trump said, we'll see you in court, though, I didn't get that. He's been in court and will be in court probably for the rest of his presidency. Well, can you dig into the actual ruling, the actual decision, and uh, tell us about what these judges said specifically about exactly your point, which is their power over executive uh, power? Well, they said that, of course, the president has power in that area. It's just that we can review that when there are constitutional concerns at stake. In other words, his power is not absolute. This is the United States of America, though they didn't put it that way. And the courts are the ones that interpret the law. So in this case, he also, they made certain allegations. They said this is of the utmost, it's national security interest, but they never gave any evidence to the court of that. In fact, at the hearing, the Justice Department lawyer was said, I'm sort of, I think I'm not convincing the court of this. And this has come about so fast. And one of the judges, the one appointed by Barack Obama, said to him, well, why are you here at this point then? Maybe you should be waiting and get your act together, basically, is what she was saying, because they were not prepared for this, where the states had all the evidence of the irreparable harm to their citizens and the companies in their states. So basically, the court was it was and also, you know, it was it was unanimous and it was a per curiam opinion, which means that no judge signed it as having written it. So no judge could be attacked as having said, oh, this was written by the liberal Obama appointee or the liberal Jimmy Carter appointee. It was written by we don't know who, but all three joined in it. What should uh, uh, you know, one of the th- what should executives, people who are running companies take away from this court decision because they have to operate in an environment over which they do not have control. Well, this court decision only now it goes back to the federal judge and there are decisions all around the country. In fact, there's another there's a court hearing in Virginia today. So, I mean, is it a definitive answer to no, what But I mean happen? as part of a larger strategy. Well, In other words, what, for example, Neil Gorsuch is before the, the Senate. So right. there's, there, there's got to be a strategy, you know, and, and you know, anyone who's ever read uh, the president's uh, book, The Art of the Deal, you know, you come away, there's a strategy and, you know, you test all points. So I'm wondering if in your mind you see this as part of a larger strategy. Well, I think that this particular order was done hastily, as we've heard about. It wasn't written well. They, If they take the judges, uh, you know, everyone who's been talking about this and also what the court actually said in 
in the hearing when they wanted them to step back and why don't you just, you know, limit this order so that it's all right. And they said, that's your job. The, they have, this was so hastily done. I can't believe that it, it was part of a strategy. They may start to strategize now and they may start to strategize so that they take the right case up to the Supreme Court. This is not the case that they should put before the Supreme Court, but I don't think the court would take this case anyway because it's too soon. Uh, one thing that I find interesting is the is the scuffle between uh, Neil Gorsuch, the Supreme Court nominee, uh, and President Trump, where evidently uh, Gorsuch told senators that he was dismayed and disheartened by some of the rhetoric that he's heard from the president with respect to the judiciary system. Do you think that Gorsuch's response to Trump puts him in a better position to get confirmed, first of all. And second of all, does it sort of raise a question about whether President Trump will renege his nomination? First of all, it does put him in a better position as far as the public's concerned. But Democrats have said, and I thought this as soon as this came out, these were in, these words were in meetings and he didn't say it out loud to, to the public. He was setting up uh, view of himself as being independent, knowing that those questions are going to come before him when he gets to his confirmation hearings. And Democrats have said that it was even possibly a suggestion from the White House that this that this happened because here he's setting himself up as I am independent from the president. I, th- there are a lot of articles on this. And in fact, someone, a spokesman from the uh, Democratic uh, National Committee came out and said this yesterday. So was Chuck Schumer. Well, but then you've got President Trump saying that his words were twisted, that that wasn't really his meaning. So is this coming from someone other than President Trump setting it up could, this whole thing? Yes. They're, they're saying that Trump necess- wasn't necessarily in on it. But there is a strategy here. There's a strategy. And he has not said this out loud to the public. Also, if you think about what Trump tweeted, his he had more criticism for the senator from Connecticut and his past record, you know, where he had, hadn't told the truth about being in Vietnam. He had more criticism of him than he really did about what the judge said. He never said anything specifically bad about Gorsuch. So, you know, it's it's so it's so typical of the way politicians and uh members who are coming up, you know, uh, judiciary people who are coming up, set up things before the hearings because they want to have the people in the right frame of mind. Maybe those Democrats who are thinking, well, we shouldn't really filibuster this are saying, well, well, this judge seems like he's independent and that's going to be huge. That's going to be one of the biggest. It might overtake everything else at the hearing. So it's very smart. It's very political. And a lot of people, I'm not the only one, a lot of people are saying that it was a tactic. Thank you very much. June Grasso, our legal expert and host of Bloomberg Law on Bloomberg Radio. Weekdays, 4.30, Wall Street Time. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom Custom shirts made smarter.
We talk a lot about uh, some potentially troubling issues on the horizon, potentially the biggest sovereign default ever in history, a potential slowdown in China, and yet markets are unfazed. Art Hogan, chief market strategist at Wunderlich Capital Markets, is with us. Uh, Art, you know, we've talked with a number of strategists in the past few weeks who are calling for some kind of correction in U.S. stocks, given a lot of the uncertainties in the backdrop. Do you agree? You know, it's interesting. It, it's it's easy to call for a pullback when we've had such a significant move in a short period of time, right? So when you think about the, the quick 9% move that we had post-election, this moved into a bit of a sideways move in the last six weeks, and then except for in including the last couple of days, we've been in a very tight range. We're, we're breaking out to new highs now on the, on the promise of uh, some information on tax reform and tax cuts, which is, you know, part of the initial post-election move higher with the backdrop of improving fundamentals. But I think that when we come to the realization that a lot of this takes time and there's going to be some bargaining and that most likely getting tax reform done will be this year's business to be implemented for 18, we may well have gotten ahead of ourselves. Now, the good news here is I think the fundamentals have improved. The fourth quarter earnings were certainly better than the third, and, uh, and, uh, and guidance has certainly been better on balance for the first quarter of next year and for the balance of next year. So we're, we're not going through that pattern of lack of earnings and, and, and guidance coming down significantly. So on a multiple basis, we're looking better. Economic data have improved, and I think that's probably good. But I think part of what's priced into this market may may take a while, a, a good bit longer than is anticipated and or priced in right now. So I can see where some caution probably is a good idea. Well, Art, I'm wondering if you could explain the kind of balance that goes on between, let's say, a stock growing into its P.E. or maybe having investors more willing to pay up for that same dollar of earnings. That's a great question. I think one of the things that we, you know, it's always very difficult to ascertain is what the appropriate multiple is, especially in a in a uh, in a world where we have, you know. Yeah, I mean, it almost little. doesn't matter right now. I mean, you got right. the price earnings ratio of the S and P five hundred at more than twenty one. But mm -hmm. let's put all that put all that aside. It's, uh, what I'm looking for is your your you know you you take the pulse of the, of the street and of investors. What are they coming back to you with? What are, what are some of the parameters? Well, I can tell you this. I think that uh, investors want to know what's going to work in 17 if we get any of the three legs of the stool that might be pro-growth, right? If we get any kind of tax cuts, if we get any kind of infrastructure spend, and if we get any dereg. And I think that all of those things probably come to fruition in some shape. And I think investors want to know what they should be out of, you know, what is no longer the, the appropriate place. So give it to us. Tell to us. Well, I can tell you, Pim, I think you want to be out of dividend darlings. I think we're going to be in a rising interest rate environment, right? So, you know, that's pretty straightforward. You know, that's the REITs, it's the utilities, it's the staples to a certain extent, and to a lesser extent, the telecoms. I think you want to be in financials, then, you know, with a full stop. I think that, you know, they touch all three of those legs of that stool. And I certainly think that the, infra the infrastructure plays or the industrials are also going to be positive. Now, all of this, you know, is contingent on getting some of that done in the time. No, no, no I got that. It's three legs to a stool, but you can't, you know, you got you got to at least have a plan before you can build the stool. No, absolutely you do. And I think that that's, but you also have to remember what to avoid, right? What's been the most popular trade over the last three years, Tim, and it's been the, it's been the bond right. surrogates, right? So I think that can, needs to continue to unwind. You have to understand what you hold and why you do. All right. So yeah. wait, getting more specific, all right, which, which companies in specific do you expect to underperform in the next six months? 
Well, companies with specifics, I will certainly tell you that the entire utility complex, which is you know still trading at a multiple that's three multiple turns higher than its average, is 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 probably to be avoided, right? I think that if you look at on balance the real estate investment trust world, which has gotten a great deal of sponsorship over the last three years and all the interest in the market, that should be avoided unless you you know, can see a bargain. If you can buy something at seventy five percent of its NAV, you're probably still in a good place there. Away from that, anything that's closer to one hundred percent of its NAV is overpriced right now in the REIT world. I think in Staples, the same thing is true. We have multiples there that are three or four multiple turns higher. So when you, when, you know, there was a reason to buy dividend darlings in a low interest rate environment. If interest rates are going up, and we believe they are this year, that's a, that's another sector to avoid. What can you play? I think financials across the board are going to do well. They just got back to the 2007 levels, the only sector in the S&P 500 that had not done that. And I think there's a lot of runway in front of them. And when you think right. about deregulation, that's one thing. Rising interest rates is another. Right. You know, I've got to say, uh, this is something a lot of people have been talking about the yield curve should steepen, bond yields should rise, and yet you have a number of prominent investors, not least of which is BlackRock's Larry Fink, coming out and saying the more likely move for 10-year Treasury yields is down from here, uh, potentially below 2%, and the sort of whole reflation trade is really being questioned. So how do you, how do you pair that with the idea of continuing to bet on financials? No, and I completely understand. He also said in the same interview that he thought there's a, likely a chance that it goes to 4%, then it goes to 2%. He's leaning towards the 2% first. I think it's the, it's that, it's the framework of timing. Can, you, can we hit both, right? Can we hit, you know, go to 2% before we get to 4%? Absolutely. But I think most likely you're going to see interest rates higher, not lower than they are at the end of this year, and therefore you should probably invest towards that end. Is that, in, in technical terms, uh, uh, Art, that's called the alley-oop, isn't it? Well, certainly, right? I mean, if you think interest rates are going up, right. it's, you know, quite candidly, if you think interest rates at the end of this year will be higher than where they are now, are we going to be at a 25 or 2.4 yield on the 10-year, right. or are we going to be closer to 3%? I think we're going to be closer to 3% and something north of that. Non, Non-bank financials as well as banks? Uh, non-bank financials as well as banks. I think the you know the entirety of the, of the you know the, I think the uh, I think the regional banks still look very very attractive. Mm-hmm. I certainly think that the um, the money center banks look attractive and 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 fairly and fairly valued here with a lot of runway in front of them. And I certainly think that you know the you know what what I wouldn't do is necessarily broaden that out to a basket of uh, both domestic and international banks because we certainly have a lot of debt issues and and a lot of European banks haven't gone through quite the. We rigor can't we interest you in any through. shares of Banco Monte di Pas. <laughs> That's a great question, but you know, you could interest me in uh, in some swampland in Florida before I might nibble on that. Real quick, uh, Art, how concerned are you about uh, Marine Le Pen winning uh, the uh, presidency in France and uh, and potentially roiling markets in Europe? Yeah, that's going to be the first of what might be several elections we're going to have to keep a close eye on. I certainly think that trying to predict who's going to win an election in the last 12 months has been a fool's game. So I think that we should be concerned, regardless of what polls look like, and the, the knock-on effect. If you've lost um, Great Britain, if there's a, if there's a, if there's, you know, we all thought there was no chance there, there was going to be a Brexit. You know, if you if you want to come up with a narrative that the eurozone could unravel, throw France into the mix, and I think you get on a slippery slope, so it's going to be something we're going to pay a whole lot more attention to than we are right now. You're going to be very busy in April and May. May 7th, I believe, is that last uh, vote for the French presidency. Thanks very much. Art Hogan, he is the chief market strategist at Wonderlick Markets. We do have a new head of human 
Health and Human Services, Tom Price, who was confirmed to the position by Congress. And I want to bring in Brian Rye, Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, to talk about what his initial steps might be to revoke, repeal, amend uh, Obamacare or the uh, ACA uh, measure. So first, uh, Brian, uh, what is his take on how to change uh, the current Obamacare regime? Yeah, well, you know, I think from his standpoint, you know, recall that Tom Price is by training an orthopedic surgeon, so he views a lot of the health care questions uh, through the lens of a doctor. And doctors really don't like being told what to do by the federal government. They don't like uh, a lot of the orders um, involving health IT and trying to upgrade their systems and taking time away from seeing, uh, dealing with patients. So I think what, what he would like to do from his standpoint as heading HHS is maybe slow down or roll back some of the things that CMS under or HHS under President Obama uh, have been trying to do. Uh, in other words, dictating a lot of uh, across-the-board uh, new ways to pay for hip replacements, uh, cardiac care, uh, whatever. Uh, so I, you may see him try and do that. But I think longer term, he's going to be a very eager and willing partner uh, with uh, Republican leaders in Congress as they try and, and finally uh, coalesce around some, some strategy uh, to both repeal and replace key provisions uh, of the ACA. Brian, is there any way for you to describe the pattern of horse trading that might go on because, of course, you have an industry now that has multiple players. You have just the death of these two big uh, mergers for uh, Anthem and uh, Cigna, as well as uh, the, the Aetna, Humana, and so on. So, you, you know, you, you, you end up with a, with a lot of players who, you know, not necessarily have the same direct interest, but, you know, the enemy of my friend, that kind of thing. No, it's a good point. And, you know, certainly he's not entering an easy easy position or an easy job um, at this time. And I think part of that has been illustrated by how difficult it's been for Republicans to coalesce around a strategy that they campaigned on very vehemently for, for five, six years, um, you know, uh, in, in repealing and replacing uh, the ACA. I think a lot of the things that Price would want to push for is, number one, no matter what the replacement plan is, you have to have a stable exchange, a stable uh, uh, environment for insurers. And that was one problem legitimately. Uh, under the ACA is you had United, uh, Aetna, Humana all pulling out because the risk pools are so poor. So I think you would see him look to push for uh, some insurer-friendly uh, uh, modifications, maybe let them charge or increase the, the difference between what they can charge their oldest, sickest patients and their youngest, healthiest patients as a way to try and drive down those premiums for the younger, healthier people that, unfortunately, for the exchanges have been staying out so far, but they need those in there to, to improve the risk pool and make them, frankly, just doable uh, for the insurers. Brian, uh, I, I'm not sure how much this is relevant to uh, Tom Price's position, but it seems like he comes in with potentially less political capital than others have had in his position. His, his nomination, his confirmation, rather, was highly contentious. Does this matter? You know, ordinarily it might. I would argue that in, in, in this current environment, I'm not sure it does because he's certainly not the only one. Now, if he had been singled out as someone and all the other nominees were, were sailing through, but as we've seen with uh, the education confirmation and, and uh, uh, the attorney general, I mean, this is sort of how things are going right now. So I, I don't think that he's going to be singled out. And, and again, he's got uh, Republicans uh, leading both chambers, uh, both the House and, and the Senate and Congress. Uh, and so I think he's got the, the full and, and unequivocal 
support, uh, frankly, right now, the people who are leading those efforts. Well, and how much will uh, the changes to Obamacare be led by him versus how much will they be led by members of Congress? Well, you know, the, the, right, right now, you know, he, he's, he's changing his, his cap because he had authored an Obamacare replacement bill while a member of Congress a couple of years ago. Um, he will, be, I'm sure, be, you know, providing his input in those things. But no, he's part of the executive branch now. And so his role, I think, is going to be more turning inward uh, within HHS, within CMS, within the FDA, saying, what, what can I direct the folks that I now, uh, you know, control uh, to do to, in, in the words of Trump's own um, executive order a month ago, to ease the regulatory burdens, um, you know, imposed by the ACA. So I think he'll be looking to see what things he can do uh, from that standpoint while Congress, you know, goes through the process of deliberating what they're going to do. Uh, but certainly once Congress does decide on that, I think he'll be, again, a very willing and eager partner to help them implement that. I want to squeeze as much as I can out of you, Brian. Medical device makers, tell us about them. We'll give you about 30 seconds or so. Well, I think, you know, device makers uh, right now, they have two main concerns um, with the ACA. First, they have a, uh, there's a 2.3% excise tax on all medical devices. Now, there's actually a moratorium on those tax, on that tax that ends at the end of 2017. Uh, so the clock's ticking, either as part of an Obamacare repeal effort or a standalone effort. They're going to be pushing hard this year uh, to, um, uh, to essentially either extend that moratorium or repeal that tax outright. And the second thing is the Medical Device User Fee Act has to be reauthorized every five years. And Guess what? This is a year the, the, that year that it has to be reauthorized. So there's going to be a must-pass bill for both devices and drugs to uh, reauthorize the FDA to extract user fees from them. They'll be watching that closely as well. You did it. Well done. Thank you very much, Brian Rye, Senior Healthcare Policy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence for its government team, based, of course, in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.